You know, as I um, listened to the Duffy's testimony of how they came to know Christ, I think about the names, that random assortment of names over there, and how none of them likely know each other, or very few. And you and I represent some of those random lives that God wants to have a very reasoned and yet redemptive impact on them. To them, to them, those folks that we're praying for their salvation, um, they just consider themselves to just be out here, and they're just having these encounters with various members of the body of Christ. Feels completely random, but 100% a reasoned and providential and sovereign work of God uh, to help them hear the gospel and to see the gospel worked out. And so uh, I would just beg and ask as we continue to uh, walk through our kind of who's your one season that you do not neglect to pray for those uh, on that board there so that they also would uh, have their own stories of hope and we would see God using us in incredibly reasoned ways uh, to help them see the gospel and their great need uh, for God. So, um, awesome. I love the stories of hope, every single one of them. I'm continuing to be just uh, impacted by their great diversity and seeing how God has used so many different people uh, to bring people to himself. So, this morning, we are going to ask God's help uh, with a Herculean task of kicking off our new series. And, but not only doing that, that's relatively easy. But this morning, we're going to be covering 10 chapters uh, from the book of Numbers. Quite a Herculean task, yeah. And so, uh, you know, I'm just sitting here doing worship. Lord, I'm, I'm not enough. Uh, yeah, but you are. Come on, let's get it. So um, I'm going to lead us in prayer. And would you just pray with me and for me and also for yourselves that we would get all that God has for us uh, from his word today. Amen. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, we sang songs to you that uh, sometimes they just roll off the tongue because melodically they are our favorite. But other times, oh God, those songs and those lyrics get a lot of traction in our lives because they speak so directly to our current condition. There are times, oh God, when we um, know our needs very obviously because they are front and center, and other times we are completely oblivious to our great need. In this moment, whether our needs are obvious or oblivious, we come to you as the God who is more than enough. Lord God, help us to discover you as the one who is absolutely more than enough. We need you, not just as an academic statement or a statement that is theologically true, but it is a statement that encapsulates, encapsulates the reality of our lives. We need you. We need you as the teacher, Lord God, to with profundity, clarity, and practicality, Lord God, um, declare your great truths. We need you as the hearers, oh God, um, to receive what you have to say and effectively incorporate it into our lives. Um, and so, Lord God, we need you. Uh, we need you, oh God, to show us our sin so that there will be nothing on the ledger of our hearts that would stand in the way of us fully trusting you. And so... Um, Lord God, show us ourselves in the mirror of your word, glorify yourself, and edify your people um, as you see fit in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, as you already heard Zach say, we just wrapped up our series from the book of Jonah, and now we are kicking off this new series in uh, the book of Numbers. What an odd and random place to do so. Why did we choose Numbers? We chose Numbers because we felt like the backdrop of the lives of the Israelites in the wilderness, being people who are primarily wandering, uh, and wandering, wandering because they don't know where they're going, and wandering because they're wondering, trying to figure out what in the world is God doing with us. I believe it's very indicative of a season that we might find ourselves in. 
As I listen to people talk about their lives and where we are now, it's almost like the pandemic has become our point of reference. You more and more hear people talk about things like, well, you know, before the pandemic, or this was all pre-pandemic, uh, or we use phrases like, we are in the middle of a pandemic, and then we pause because we don't want to jinx it. Like, are we really in the middle? Is it really halfway over? Are we toward the end? It's like because we thought we were toward the end before and then found out, like, wait a minute, there's still some more. And so, so like, like our season of life, the space where we are, uh, uh, we don't know exactly when this is going to wrap up. So what do we do as a people with a season of life where we don't know when it's going to end, we don't know all the terrain, we don't know what we're going to encounter next, whether it be the pandemic or whether it be uh, various uh, political uh, infighting, or well, no matter what's happening in the landscape of life, what do we do with this season? It feels very much like a wilderness. And so uh, we believe that just to kind of walk through the lives of some other folk who've gone through a wilderness, but hopefully not just doing it from their perspective, but from the Lord's perspective, to, to, to have a roadmap of his faithfulness in the lives of fallen people through a very rugged and unsure terrain, what can we learn from them and what can we learn of the Lord that would help us also as a people navigate this very unfamiliar and kind of unforgiving season? of pandemics and political unrest. Now, to fully appreciate the story, and particularly 10 consecutive chapters of, of the book of Numbers, I feel like we need to understand more uh, or less where does the book of Numbers fit within the larger narrative of Scripture. So if the larger narrative of Scripture, for the purposes of today's message, is that God desires to reveal himself with a view toward relationship with his people, and in the outworking of that relationship to be reverence, and that larger narrative encapsulates the entire Bible, no matter where you are, you are encountering some facet of revelation that leads to relationship that results in reverence, right? Exactly how is God revealing himself in this particular piece of the Bible? Where does, where does the book of Numbers fit? Well, for New Testament believers, God is revealing himself primarily through the adventure uh, uh, of the church and his work amongst the church. This is how people see and hear and come to understand very much of what God is doing. This is ground zero of God's revelation that leads to relationship. Because as we disclose God properly in the outworking of our lives as a church, what happens is people hear this thing called the gospel, and the gospel is in pointing them to relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And as their lives are transformed and they're outworking relationship with Jesus Christ, the Lord is reverence by that. Well, in the Old Testament, there was a similar effort always underway, and while, the, while ground zero of God's revelation wasn't in the church, it was amongst this group of people called the Israelites. And ground zero of how God did business in the midst of his people was at this place called the tabernacle. So when we arrive at the building of a tabernacle, uh, we've got this very rough people who have just recently, only one year out from their deliverance from uh, uh, Egyptian bondage, uh, find themselves trying to figure out how to do relationship with God. And as they are trying to find themselves and wandering through this unique season, the Lord isn't wandering. He's got the master plan. But he's welcoming them into this. And I want you to kind of see their lives uh, from, a, from a, a, another view. In the book of Genesis, you see God giving birth to the Israelites out of a promise to Abraham. They, they were born. That's what they see. They see their beginnings there in the book of Genesis. Then we see the same God delivering them from bondage out of Egypt in the book of Exodus. 
At the end of the book of Exodus, we see God talking to Moses about how to build a tabernacle. And then, of course, once the tabernacle is in full effect, we see the book of Leviticus, which is really choppy and sometimes hard to read. But what you're seeing there in the book of Leviticus is God giving these people that have been born out of a promise to Abraham, brought out of bondage in Egypt, now being given a blueprint for how to effectively have relationship with him. And so in that blueprint, I mean, it is painstakingly detailed, just like a blueprint. Kind of, if you're not an architect, sometimes reading a blueprint is just not fun at all. You just want to fast forward, like, show me the images that I readily recognize, because these measurements and these dimensions and all these, these, these circles and lines, they don't mean a lot to me. And that's how the book of Leviticus can feel sometimes. You're seeing kind of this grand architecture of not only the holiness of God, but also how he wants to inhabit the lives of his people and how they have to bring certain animals and exactly how to cut their wings off and how do you manage all of that. And so the, while, the, while, while Genesis shows the birth of the people and Exodus shows the release of the deliverance of those people from bondage, Leviticus shows the blueprint. Here is how an unholy, rough, raggedy, and theologically raw people can have relationship with a completely, totally perfect and holy God. And then when we get to the book of Numbers, we see the holy God of Leviticus saying, all right, how can I build for myself a holy people? And so we see God in the book of Numbers then building a people for himself. He's rescued a nation, but how does he go from a blueprint for relationship to actually building a people? And so in the book of Numbers, you just see all of this detail about how the Lord wants the people to now build their lives around what he has built. He's built a tabernacle. He's built the new place where he wants to reveal himself and relate to them and how he wants to be reverenced. And so you begin walking through these chapters, the first 10 chapters here, and what you see first and foremost as an order of business is that God tells uh, the leaders of the nation, Moses and Aaron, to, tell the, to, to now arrange the people according to their tribes and their households, situate them on the north, the south, the east, and the west. And then after you situate them around the tabernacle, this also will represent the order and the cadence in which they will move and which they will march. And in addition to that, I'm going to give you this other group of people called the Levites who are officially responsible for being closest to the tabernacle. They will serve the people as, as priests, and they will also situate and serve the temple. And these are going to be their liaisons. This is going to be the, the go-between between my holiness and their unholiness. How do they have a relationship with me? And so what you see here, if you could see it in picture form in the first 10 chapters, is God is literally arranging the furniture of, the, of his people's lives. Now, you've walked into a place and seen furniture arrangements, right? Let's kind of zoom off the text real quick and just kind of come back into contemporary life. You walk into a person's apartment and you go into a room, you can immediately tell the purpose and the preferences and the uses of that room, the priorities of that room, based on how what? The furniture is arranged. You walk into a room and you see a bed, you assume that room is for sleeping. That's right. You walk into a room and you see an ottoman, a sofa, and a massive TV that is front and center on the wall. That room is for recreation and entertainment. You go into a room and front and center, the centerpieces is all, it, it's, it's jump ropes, it's kettlebells, it's, you know, it's ellipticals. What is that room for? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we are not altogether unfamiliar with this idea that the arrangement sometimes, not sometimes, always speaks to purpose. And so if you could see a picture of the book of Numbers, the arrangement that you have is that the tabernacle where God hangs out with his people is in the center and their lives are all arranged around it. And so what we realize is that this is more than just a physical arrangement. It actually speaks to a spiritual reality that God wants to be front and center in the lives of people, which is the title of today's message, which is front and center. But not just front and center. We'll notice that throughout the movements of the first 10 chapters of the book of Numbers, there's a few stops that we're going to make that really highlight what it means for God to be front and center in the lives of His people. And I want to double down on this word, His people, because this isn't just a narrative of how He wanted Israel to arrange their lives. It's also a narrative of how He wants us to arrange our lives. One of the tragedies and one of the triumphs of the book of Numbers is that this group of people that he brought out of Egypt will not be the same group that make it into the promised land. But this particular narrative is actually a part of our salvation narrative. The same you that God saved out of bondage will not be the same you that enters into the kingdom. Because the Bible tells us that the old man must die. And there is a generation of Israel that is going to die He's going to walk it out. He's going to work out their salvation in them. They are, they are going to experience God in such a way that they recognize that certain parts of them must die fully in order for another part of them to follow God completely. And I believe that that is the grand ethic of the, of the book of Numbers, and that's what we should be on the lookout for, or any theological clues or soteriological gems. It's how is God actively working in our lives to kill the old man and give great life to the new man that we could fully follow him and trust him? Well, one of the first cornerstones that I believe comes from the death of the old man and the life of the new man, this new person that God wants to build in us, comes from how we prioritize God. And it's this, that God's people, that's us, must prioritize God's presence. God's people must prioritize God's presence. It needs to be a centerpiece in our lives. Of all the furnishings and all the things that we focus on, God's presence must, God's people must be prioritized, uh, excuse me, God's people must prioritize God's presence. God's people must prioritize God's presence. Now, the big question of the day is, why? Why? I mean, I feel like I've, I've built a comfortable case for why, but, but I believe also that when God's people prioritize God's presence, something transformative happens in all of our lives. Our lives are ordered and reoriented after God's own priorities, and something is transformed in us. And I want to look at four distinct areas of transformation that will take place in the lives of the Israelites throughout the book of Numbers that I believe should also be echoed in our lives because we are also God's people. So again, as he is killing the old man or putting the old man to death, and bringing life to the new man, just as Romans chapter 6, verses 6 through 8 say, it says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Uh, for one who has died has been set free from sin. And now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So God has set them free from both the sinful environment and the sinful realities of Egypt, but there's still a lot of Egypt in them, and so that is also what is being killed throughout the course of the wilderness wanderings that we see in the book of Numbers. Amen. Was that a, was it clap for me? It was like a golf clap. 
Yeah, I'll take some of that. Amen. So, so again, as we talk about God's people must prioritize God's presence, I want to see this transformation in my life as well. I want to see the old man die. I'm tired of his complaints and how it is that he regularly ensnares me from being able to fully trust God. And so what are some of these four corner, cornerstones of transformation that we're going to take a look at? Here's the first one, and I believe that it's found in Numbers chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Let's read it together. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, and on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. So they're very fresh out of Egypt, right? So there's still some Egypt in them, even though they are out of Egypt. Uh, the, and, he, and he said to them, take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel, by clans, by fathers, houses, according to the numbers of, of names, every male, head by head from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war. Curious, very curious. You and Aaron shall list them company by company. So in this first arrangement, the Lord refers to Israel as armies. Now, I found that quite curious because Israel really doesn't have an extended history of being warriors or people who were involved in warfare. I mean, they had one major conflict, which God was really the commander-in-chief, the conqueror, the equipment, and their power. He brought them out of Egypt. They didn't do anything. They didn't lift a sword. They had one minor skirmish after that, but, but, but not nearly enough for them to be framed as a military people. But God refers to them as warriors. He says, I want you to arrange armies. They're in, raised them in their armies around the tabernacle. Why? I believe that one of the first cornerstones of transformation that happens in the lives of God's people when we would prioritize his presence is this, is that he transforms us from being simply wanderers to being warriors. He wants to transform us from being wanderers to being warriors. You must say, well, wait a minute. Well, yeah. Does the Bible not tell us as New Testament believers that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, that we're involved in spiritual warfare? Did Jesus not say that when he built his church upon this rock and, and, and that, the, that the gates of hell would not prevail against it? So we get this military look at ourselves. I mean, over and over in the scripture, we see ourselves as a people who are conquering with Christ as the one who creates and guarantees the victory. So this is not unfamiliar language. The Lord wants to move us from being wanderers to warriors. But it's not just our warfare that is in view. I believe also as we move from wanderers, people who have no clue where they're going, and we become warriors by prioritizing God's presence, that is indicative of a people who have clear mission, clear direction, clear organization. We know exactly where we're going. I believe it was David Platt who said, God's people may not always know where they're going, but they always know who they are with. And that provides an incredible amount of clarity for God's people. So as you and I would prioritize God's presence, this is the thing that gives us clarity and direction during this unique season where we may not know what's coming next. The Lord wants to transform his people from wanderers to warriors. This is an important thing to think about because minus the prioritization of God's presence, it is our environment that dictates our identity. Think about what is it that makes Israel wanderers? It's because they are in a wilderness, a directionless place. Every day we have to fight not to adopt the identity from our location or our current station in life. There are some of us that know ourselves as single moms or know ourselves as single dads, that know ourselves as sixth and seventh year seniors in college. 
those that know ourselves as late bloomers living in our parents' basement. We know ourselves, some of us as CPAs, and know ourselves as engineers. We know ourselves as doctors. Why? Because our place and station in life so oftentimes speaks to what we believe our identity is. And we have to fight not to adopt, whether it be positive or negative from a cultural perspective, we must fight not to adopt the identity of our current station in life, but adopt the identity that God gives us. This is an important realization because whatever label God gives us is both relational and missional in its nature. Consider the words of 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Love all those labels. Would love to have t-shirts or hoodies with that embroidered on it. But here's what else he says. It isn't just my label. It isn't just a statement of my current relationship. He also says it's a statement of my mission that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So notice that the label and the names that God give us are both relational and missional. They speak to who we are and what God wants us to do. God calls us. He, 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 he identifies himself as a father. We're his children. And then he later says, you know what, and if you're my children and I give you, and I have given you my, my son, what else would I not give you? And then the Bible goes on into all the things that believers could conquer in the strength of Christ. The Bible tells us that we are his bride, therefore he is our bridegroom. What does that tell us? It tells us something about our relationship, but it also tells us something about our mission in him, who we are and what we're supposed to be doing. Whatever label God gives us is both relational and missional. And this is one of the transformative works that comes from prioritizing God's presence that I believe we should all be involved in. Let's skip down to Numbers chapter 1, excuse me, Numbers chapter 1, verses 52 through 54. God then says, uh, The people of Israel shall pitch their tent by their companies, each man in his own camp, and each man by his own standard. Uh, but the Levites, the Levites, right, that group of people that will, that will be dedicated to the, to the care of the tabernacle, follow this carefully. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of testimony so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. And thus the people of Israel, they did according to all the Lord commanded Moses. If you follow their lives at large, you'll know that there were two great fears that gripped the lives of many of the Israelites. What are we going to eat? How are we going to survive? And oh my gosh, is God mad with us again? Right? And so it was the, the job of the, the, the Levites to really just establish this perimeter around the tabernacle to both keep the tabernacle, uh, 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 keep it and, and arrange it, but to also serve the people through it. And to help them on a regular basis understand the, the loving, caring, holy presence of God wasn't there to punish them always, but also to provide for them. That was the Levite's job, to serve as a priest, one would, that, would, that would intercede for them. Can you imagine uh, how frightened they were after they had seen some of their comrades drop dead, all thousands of them in the same day for having offended this very God? So you fast forward to the New Testament, and this is why the Bible tells us we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. And we also have one that says, therefore, as a result of this high priest who, who can sympathize with our weaknesses, come boldly to the throne of grace. This was a new thing. We can come boldly. We used to be afraid to come boldly to God because we felt like he might strike us. But 
the two great worries of Israel's life, of whether or not God's going to get us or whether or not the wilderness is going to get us, also mirror the great worries of our lives. I believe that the two major categories, we're, we're always wondering, am I in good graces with God and am I going to be able to survive this current season of life where I am? This, I, I don't know of any worries that fall out of that scope uh, for any of us as well as for Israel. But I believe that one of the cornerstones of transformation that comes from prioritizing the presence of God in our lives is this, that he wants to transform us not only from wanderers to warriors, but he also wants to transform us from worriers to worshipers, from people who are constantly worried about where we are to actual worshipers. But one of the great things about worry is this. I want you to understand clearly the, the, the anatomy of worry or the nature of worry. Worries are places where Satan wants to do his best work in our lives. The scriptures describe the job description of Satan as one that would try to, roaming back and forth, looking for whom he could devour, and a person who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So Satan wants to encamp himself in our worries to steal and rob us of our ability to fully trust God. The greatest failings, the greatest failings of Israel was to find themselves worried about where their next meal would come from or worried about some other aspect of their adventure and their prowess and wanting to be like other nations, and therefore they would bend the knee to an idol god. And so Satan does his best work through worries. But I would like to invite you to, to do something somewhat unconventional if you're already doing it, and that is this, to understand that our worries should be the building blocks for our worship. Worries, yes, should be the building blocks for our worship. Ooh, how's that going to happen? Understand that, that some of our worries are common to each other. We share them. But others of them are unique to where we are in our current lives. But the reason that we should use our worries as building blocks for our worship is because these are specific opportunities to both say to God, I trust you even in the most tender and difficult places of life, and also Satan, ha ha, I got you. Because imagine, if you will, every place that Satan wants to encamp in your life and make you worry whether or not God is still with you or whether or not you're going to have enough to live in this season of, of wilderness. Can you imagine if all of those, if every one of your inadequacies, every one of your sins, every one of your shortcomings, each time they came into your mind, you took them and converted them to reasons for worship? Can you imagine how, how, how frustrated the, the, the adversary must be to go, wait a minute, I don't want them to worship God, I want them to worry. But every time I bring something to their mind that they should worry about, they take that as worship fuel? We should use our worries as building blocks for worship. And, and, and you know what, a, a key part of doing that is being honest and vulnerable in our prayer lives and the way that we leverage what God has built in the body of Christ. When you ask somebody to pray for you, and say, how can I, you know, how can I, you know, just intercede for you in this season of your life? And you come up and, you be, and you're like, well, you know, oh, there's just a couple of areas of my life where I'm just asking for God's peace and for him to come. No. You just lost your job. You're living out of your savings. You only have enough cash to pay your house note through December. And you are worrying about whether or not you should take a cash offer for your house. No, that's what you need prayer about. But because you veil the specifics of your worries, and, and uh, God knows, but why, why, would you, why would you not invite the rest of the body into the ability to worship God specifically when he shows up in a crazy way and solves all of those problems or carries you through them? 
Our worries, stop veiling our worries. Our worries should be the building blocks of our worship because with every one of them, God is looking to transform us from worriers to worshipers. I can't think of a better passage that really invites my heart into this reality than Psalm 103, verses 1 through 5. Every time I read this passage or even pray through it, there's not a single need in my life that I don't find somewhere in this language. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. He is the one who forgives all of our iniquity. There it is. Lord, if I'm afraid of your wrath and any outcomes, Lord, you're the one who brings forgiveness. So I'm going to worship you as the God who forgives, and then I'm going to come to you and ask for some forgiveness. And then it says, not only are you the one who, who forgives all of our iniquity, but you're the one who heals my diseases. I'll worship you as the one who does heal, and then I'm going to come ask for some of it. Uh, he's the one who redeems my life from the pit, or the one who crowns us with steadfast love and mercy, the one who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your strength is renewed like eagles. Lord, I need all of this verse in my life. This encapsulates not only reasons to worship, but it encapsulates every single one of my life's worries. The Lord wants to transform us to a people who move from being worriers to being worshipers. There's more. Numbers chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel that they, that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge or everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, and you should put them outside the camp, and they, uh, that they may not defile the camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so, and put outside the camp, as the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. Now, this is interesting. After he got them fully arranged on the north, south, east, and west, he then says, now take inventory in your ranks, and anyone that is unclean, anything that is unholy, put them outside the ranks. Why? Because heretofore, the people of Israel have been witnesses of God's holiness. They saw the book of Leviticus and was like, ooh-wee, that's a high standard. They saw God crush and kill people and do different things, you know, at the base of the mountain. And they were like, ouch, this God is serious. He is holy. But God wants to transform his people from just being witnesses of his holiness to being people who actually wear it and work it out in our own lives. I think one of the great New Testament uh, places that speak to this is in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 through 16. But as the Lord who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. The Lord knows that we can never be holy just like he is holy, but he also knows that we can reflect holiness in our daily conduct and our behaviors. And so this third cornerstone of transformation that comes from God's people prioritizing God's presence is this. We move from witnesses of his holiness to actually working out his holiness in our daily lives. Holiness, just by definition, is the fact that God is distinct from and other than. Well, who outside the body of Christ will ever experience that unless they see it at work within our lives? How do we work out? How do we walk out? How do we live out the reality of what it means to be distinct from and other than? How do we help the world translate this deeply religious word of holiness so that it doesn't just sound like something that is trapped in the books of religion and they actually see it as something that is captured in the lives of people who have a relationship with the Holy One? We become the lexicon. We become the looking glass. We become the, 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 the thing that pe the view master that people can look through and see God in full color. Oh, that's what he's like. 
I was always afraid of this idea of holiness. Now I see what it means. Consider this. This call to live a life of holiness is one where God would have us to look at the areas of our lives where we are prone to wander and recognize them as areas where he wants to prove his will. This is all he wanted to do. He, he wasn't trying to play a great I gotcha game with the folks in Israel, and he's not trying to play I gotcha with us. How do we know that the Lord wants to take areas where I'm prone to wander and actually make them places where he wants to prove his will? Well, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 say this, I appeal to you, I think it was Zach who said, I beseech you, I love that, I beseech you, that's just strong. Uh, I beseech you, therefore, uh, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by the testing, of, by, by testing you may discern. In some of your Bibles, the same one that says beseech, it says that you may prove what is the will of God. There is a desire of God to actively demonstrate His will for us through the areas that we might be prone to wander. So just like we need to take our areas of worry and let them be transformed to areas of worship, areas where I'm prone to wander, the Lord says, come on, give me that. Let me prove my will there. Once again, this demands a high level of vulnerability and honesty about us in the way that we talk about our sin. Rather than just trying to sweep it under the rug or find fancy religious phrases to, to refer to it, hoping that the person we're asking to intercede for us will kind of get what we're getting at. No. God says, take the areas where you're wandering. Bring that to me. Let's talk about it. I want to prove my will in that space. Man, when I think about the stories of hope, I, I think about stories of people who have experienced incredible transformation from stuff that, wow, I was like, God, you're still in the business of fixing that? There's hope for me. If you're, if you're working on people who were, who were selling that, snorting that, sniffing that, committed to that, caught up in that, a hostage to that, and you brought them out of that, that's an expression of your will. Lord, that encourages my heart. So body of Christ, we need to benefit from each other as we watch the Lord wonderfully and awesomely show his will and what holiness looks like in real time in the lives of flawed people. This is what God wants to do among us. So in his fourth and final, final pillar of transformation that comes from people who would prioritize God's presence in their lives, it's found in Numbers chapter 9, verses 15 and 17. I know for a moment you got really scared when uh, I said we're going to go through 10 chapters and my first two points were derived from chapter 1 and then the third one was only at chapter 5. <laughs> so here we are at chapter 9. In chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, the Bible says this, And on the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle and the tent of testimony. And at the evening, it was over the tabernacle like the, pre, um, uh, like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always the cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, um, after that, the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. Now, this is a key moment to realize what God is training his people to do as they would prioritize their lives around his presence. Israel's history in warfare, uh, their win-loss record is contingent on one reality. Did God tell them to go? Did they follow his lead and did they obey him when they went? Because they are not seals by nature. 
They're just this ragtag crew of wandering nomads with no profound military experience who win a few battles and thought they could go out and whip some folks in their own strength. And God would allow them to get their rear ends handed to them in some of these historic battles, and then they would come back, licking their wounds, and say, okay, God, we'll, we'll go when you say go. But all of that, both their successes and their failures, were all a part of God refining them in this one particular area where God wants to transform us, and that is from transform us from being a people who simply want God's guidance to people who will actually wait on His guidance. One of the capstone passages of the contemporary Christian era is this. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. Everybody loves this verse. I can do all things through him, through Christ who strengthens me. And it's almost like we take that passage and we plug it into an agenda of our own, believing that Jesus will give us some kind of spiritual guarantee and turbo boost while we are setting the agenda and he's going to come along and guarantee the victory. I can do all things through him. But since we're doing all things through him, let's talk to him for a second and see what he says. In John chapter 5, verse 19, here's Jesus. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son cannot do anything of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that is what the son does likewise. So if I thought I could set an agenda, invite Jesus into it, and he would bless it, Jesus is saying, Father, are you doing any of that? Because the, the son doesn't do what the father's not doing. So before I adopt a life agenda, and I simply want God to come into it, I need to want his actual guidance. Many of us want God's guidance, but will we wait for it? This is, what, this is, a, this is a transformative point. They feel the same. We all want, every person wants God to step into their lives and guarantee the outcomes of a Philippians 4.13. But are we really willing to wait for God like Jesus did in John chapter 5, verse 19? This is how God wants to transform us. As the Lord reveals to Israel kind of the movements of the cloud by day and the pillar by night, Sometimes he would stay in one place for a very long period of time, and others it would be a very short period of time. As he trains our hearts, as we prioritize his presence, we, he trains our hearts to wait on him, he's still driving home a central truth that I'll always be with you, day and night. Jesus said something very similar to his disciples and his followers. He says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. This theme of how God wants to be with his people and setting the rhythms of their lives, setting the order and the cadence and giving them guidance if they'll just wait for him. This, 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 this ethic is throughout the scriptures and even in the New Testament. You see, when we look at this, we see God's presence not only guarantees unprecedented fruit when we succeed in following him, but it also guarantees unprecedented forgiveness when we sin against him. The Lord is just as great in coming, not just coming alongside our agenda, but when we will follow him successfully, he'll give us fruit like we can never imagine. You remember the spies that went into the land and they were like, whoa, we've never seen grapes like this. Even in our lives today, the Lord will say, if you'll follow me, there'll be unprecedented fruit if you learn how to wait for my guidance. But even when you blow it, there'll be unprecedented forgiveness. That's what the Lord offers through his permanent presence in the lives of his people. I think these are important transformative truths for us to learn as we prioritize God's uh, presence in our lives because they all point us to the larger reality of the gospel. We talk a lot here at Gospel Hope about being gospel-centered people. Well, here's one of the ways that I believe we become gospel-centered. 
when we understand that it is, it is, it is the Father's desire to inhabit the praises of his people. I want you to know, how can God be so bold? Or is it, is it too tall of a task for God to ask his people to prioritize his presence? No, it's not too tall of a task because God has prior, prioritized his people being in his presence. Do you understand that that's, the, that's what's the, what the gospel is? The gospel is God's invite to know his permanent and ongoing presence, not just in heaven forever, but also here on earth through the person of his Holy Spirit. Do you recognize that, that embedded within the gospel is not only God's invite to come and have our permanent presence with him, but it is also our invite to know Jesus Christ who says he'll never leave nor forsake us and provide us with an ongoing example to rearrange the furniture of our lives to teach and show us how to move in these earthly tents that are so prone to flaw. It's not only that, but the gospel is God's invite not only to know his presence permanently or to know his son as a pattern of how we ought to live, but to also know the permanent guarantee of his Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. And as we would follow the lead of the Holy Spirit, you know what happens, ladies and gentlemen? We experience unprecedented fruit, but at the same time, when we blow it, we experience unprecedented forgiveness. And all of this is offered to us in the reality of the gospel. What the gospel does is God's saying, I've asked you to prioritize my presence, and I know that that's tough for you, so I'm going to prioritize my presence with you. I'm going to give you a way to get what you can never get for yourselves. Do you understand that, that, that even in the Old Testament, while we don't think of grace, the Israelites were born out of grace. He didn't choose them because they had chops. He caused them to be born out of grace. He, he delivered them out of Israel as a work of grace. They didn't bring any strength to the table. They didn't know how to relate to a holy God. He built the, the Levitical process in the tabernacle. That, too, is a work of grace. The, the Old Testament is littered with stories of grace, and it's just, it's for me and you, too. So I hope that we would just bathe ourselves in this next season in the book of Numbers and just learn about all that God would say to his people, and he has been saying historically, that the work of grace and how God wants his people to prioritize his presence in their lives is not a new conversation. I hope you'll look back at the book of Numbers with me over this journey we'll go through and see in picture form what the principles of the New Testament have been screaming at us. But I'd also like for you to do one other thing with me. As you think about the people in your lives who need to know Jesus, I want you to understand that apart from God's presence, apart from a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that the people over there on that board, and even people who might be looking back at me that do not know him, we are destined to a life of perpetual wandering, purposeless, just trying to find our way based on our own strength. We are, we are doomed and destined to a life of being wanderers and warriors, people who worry about every little thing that rob us of our faith and our ability to have joy. And we're people who stand back at a distance from God, witnesses of his holiness, but never could think we could be people that could walk it out in our own lives. The Lord wants us to be a people who would not only show these things in our lives, but also through the language of the gospel, share it with others like those folks over there who do not know him. Uh, for those of you that have been with us for the last few weeks and we're working through just kind of placing the names up there of people that we are committed to praying for, not only praying for, but that we would also be a part of sharing the gospel with them. This is kind of your moment. I want to ask you, couple of uh, action steps here. If there's a name of a person that you've been thinking about, you have yet to put on a board, would you do that? This is your moment. You can start moving if you want to. You can uh, move there and put a name up even while, um, while Jalen is playing. 
If there's a person there that you've been praying for, if you actually had a gospel conversation, would you just kind of put a circle around that name? And maybe if you are a person who, you've got a name up there, but man, you just haven't been able to build up the, the courage to share the gospel with them verbally. I just want to pray for you right now. Can I do that? Father, in the name of Jesus, I'm thankful for every ounce of your gracious work. You are the one who produces conviction and conversion. You call us, O oh God, to move with courage and obedience in sharing our faith. But we get it. We are feeble. We are flawed people who stumble over ourselves and feel like if we don't get our words perfect, that we're going to injure this person's opportunity to see you clearly. Lord God, would you deliver that? Would you deliver us from ourselves? Would you give us a boldness that only your Holy Spirit can provide to just obey you in sharing our faith, that we would articulate the clarity of the gospel, the power of the gospel, and how it works on our worries and how it helps us in a, in a life that felt like it was directionless and purposeless, how it delivers us from our sins. Lord God, would you make us a people who are vigilant about sharing our faith? And in the background, oh God, would you make us a people who prioritize your presence so that we would experience the transformation that you intend? Lord God, would you kill in us, the old man, would, we, would you enable us to render him as dead so that we can fully follow you to the places you want us to go? This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship him.